With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 41st episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also try to provide listeners worldwide with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help folks better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site so you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you who tune in, and it's from literally all over the world. This week, I want to give a special thank you to the large number of new listeners that I have from Chile, Canada, India, and Qatar. I love seeing all the countries and cities on the listeners report. It's really exciting for me to see. If you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know. Also, Thanks for all of your feedback and all of your questions you're sending in. I really, truly love getting all of your messages, so please keep them coming on in. Now, my November Privacy Professor Tips message was published on October 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've always provided them for free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email. Let me know who your privacy hero is. This can be someone at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. And we just have one more month to go for December. So please send in your thoughts and your suggestions. Now, my tip for this week is related to something that I saw in many articles about our recent elections here in the USA. But it applies much more widely to what everyone needs to be doing. Now, it was widely reported that a user manual for voting machines that are used in about 10 different states here in the U.S. appeared to have been created for some county election officials in 
different states, so multiple manuals, and they actually listed within these publicly available and discoverable manuals critical usernames and passwords for the vendor's voting machine and tabulation system. Now, the the passwords, including a system administrator and root password, were also just so trivial and easy to crack and basically to guess, including one password that was just the vendor's name. And although the voting machine user guide indicated that the customers would be prompted periodically by the system to change the passwords, the the user manual instructed them that the voting machines could reuse passwords. So they suggested within the manual to simply alternate between two of the same passwords. And in other cases, it showed and suggested to them that they just simply change the number that was appended to the end of the password in order to change them. Oh my gosh, you know, this is one of the worst or actually several ways in which password management is made worse and weak and it just, it ruins the security of your systems. It's just so completely unacceptable. It does seem so negligent for the machine vendors to do this. I mean, we're determining how our democracy is governed here with these machines. It's just really mind-blowing. But, you know, it's common among many vendors for many different types of devices and systems. I found this before in different user manuals, in my own audits and assessments. I found these same types of situations for critical systems components within devices that are within our electric grid. And I found the same type of practice showing these types of IDs and passwords in manuals for medical devices. You know, and it's common for the new New devices, too, the Internet of Things smart devices, so many of them that are being used out there in many different types of businesses, having just one very, very bad default password, and then having, in many other cases, no password or any other type of authentication device at all. So here's my tip for you today. Now, before you get any type of computerized device, a smart appliance, a security system for your home, a baby monitor, a smart toy, you know, all those different things that as we come up to the holidays, people are going to be looking at a lot of these types of devices. Basically, any device that can communicate digitally, usually via a wireless connection, look at their user manual or their user guide. Look it up online to see if it's online too, as well as being in hard copy. Now, what does it say about authentication and passwords? Does it tell you to not change the password default uh, and that you can just keep using it? Or does it say you will be required to change it? Does it have all their IDs and passwords actually printed within the manual or posted online? If 
it's doing anything that is bad password practices, don't get the device. Because you know what? If they have such horrible security practices for their passwords and authentication, I'd be willing to bet a bundle that they have really horrible or maybe even non-existent security controls elsewhere. For those devices that you do get, immediately change the default password the first time you use it and choose a long, complex password. And by this, I mean use upper and lowercase uh, letters, numerals, and special characters if it's possible. And if possible, use two-factor authentication. Now, for our show today, we are going to discuss a really important issue. And it's been growing in importance for the past several years um, with virtually all countries throughout the world, there are many types of these issues that they are dealing with too. And what we're talking about today is government surveillance activities. There are many different activities going on worldwide. There are many different tools that are being used. And when all of this surveillance is going on, a whole lot of personal data and other sensitive data is being collected. You know, how is that data being used? And who has access to that data? What decisions are being made with that data? Are those decisions going to impact the people whose personal data was collected? Now, here in the U.S., there are growing ways in which government surveillance occurs, and there are also many laws and regulations that not only allow for such surveillance, along with providing many different types of tools created by the NSA and other intelligence agencies to do a wide variety of surveillance, but then there are also other types of laws and restrictions as well. So I'm really excited to have an expert on today's show to discuss some of the U.S. government surveillance activities, governing laws and regulations for such activities, and some of the tools that they're using. Michelle Richardson is the director of the Center for Democracy and Technology's Privacy and Data Project, and her team advocates for policies and technical solutions that protect individual privacy and empowers users and also helps to advance social justice. Michelle has testified before Congress, she's advised government agencies, and she frequently appears in national press. Now, Michelle is recognized by The Hill as one of D.C.'s most influential nonprofit lobbyists. Michelle's recent work has focused on consumer privacy, Internet of Things policy, cybersecurity, surveillance, and encryption. Michelle previously led ACLU's preeminent legislative campaigns against overreaching surveillance programs, and she also served as a counsel for the House Judiciary Committee. Michelle received her BA from the University of Colorado and her JD from American University Washington College of Law. Michelle currently serves as a senior fellow at George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Michelle, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you for having me. 
Well, I'm so happy that you are um, here to answer some of these, you know, really concerning um, topics and questions about them. And I thought we could start maybe with Title III. And this is something that I think a lot of folks in the United States probably don't know what Title III is as it it relates to government surveillance, and certainly a lot of folks from throughout the world may not. So can you maybe provide a high-level description of U.S. Title III as it relates to government surveillance? Sure. Title III is just the statute that governs wiretapping in the United States. And it was passed in the late 60s after the Supreme Court found that people did have an expectation of privacy in their communications. And it... um, requires a warrant, but it also requires the government to take some extra steps, sometimes called as a super warrant. For example, they have to determine that there's no other less intrusive way to get the same information. And it sets timelines for how long the wiretapping can continue. And it serves a check on what we believe to be, you know, one of the more intrusive ways that the government can search and seize people's information. So somebody can't just decide in a government agency that uh, they want to start spying on somebody and just have one of these applied then, right? I mean, like you said, it has to have some sort of, of proof that there's not another way to get that information. Right. Title III really only governs the criminal investigations. So if the FBI, for example was doing a criminal investigation, um, it would have to go before a judge and get a warrant based on probable cause to believe that the information they were collecting would be related to a crime. Okay, so I've heard so many different pundits on TV, you know, when they talk about these things, sometimes they make it sound like it's just so easy to get one of these applied, but I'm glad you clarified that for us. And Another topic that's related to this, of course, is the USA Patriot Act, which uh, modified the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Maybe, could you provide an overview of how the USA Patriot Act modified uh, FISA? Sure. The Patriot Act passed um, just six weeks after the attacks of 9-11, and it was actually a very long bill that covered all sorts of national security and homeland security topics. But there was a specific title in there that really changed the way that we conduct intelligence investigations for terrorism, um, national defense, and the hallmark of what happened was that they lowered the standard for conducting surveillance in the United States and collecting information on people here. Um, For example, there are a number of provisions that required probable cause to collect records about people or to search people, and the standard was lowered to relevance. So it made it easier for the FBI to collect information here domestically. To be clear, it is just a domestic statute, right? Our intelligence programs that have an international or foreign component are completely outside of this statute and subject to other rules that are a little more opaque and we don't get to see much in it. Um, But we do know from some of the reporting that definitely the, the number of court orders or national security letters increased after the Patriot Act. Um, and 
It has been contentious ever since. It is subject to a sunset every four or five years. And actually, 2019 is a year when we will see a couple pieces of the Patriot Act come up again for reauthorization. Interesting. So when you you talk about having to, you know, pass it again, I guess, in effect, but it's on a piece by piece basis then the way you, you mentioned that? Yeah, overwhelmingly, the Patriot Act was made permanent. And now there are only a couple of pieces that come up every four or five years, the ones that are more controversial. Um, The one we hear the most about is Section 215, right? It was called the library provision back in the early 2000s. And it was the government's ability to seize any tangible thing um, on a relevant standard um, instead of probable cause. And people were very concerned that it could be abused because it was just so broad. Mm -hmm. And we had very, very little information about how it was used um, until the Edward Snowden leaks. And that was the first time Mm -hmm. we saw an order where it was used to collect um, the phone call information of everyone in the United States. So it was ringed in a little bit, but um, it's a good example of how maybe it's not always just paranoia and that clever lawyering can really exploit authorities that are not crystal clear, ironclad, and subject to public oversight. Well, yeah, I mean, that's very concerning. And I think a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, especially with the Snowden um, data and information, they're, they're still asking, where is all of that data now? I mean, is that still held in a repository somewhere within the government or do other people have access to that? Well, I will say that um, a lot of the allegations that started coming out in 2013 um, from Edward Snowden um, were neither confirmed nor denied, right? We really got confirmation only on a small subset of those activities that were in those documents, um, and some of them were older. Um, But what we do know is that uh, the warrantless wiretapping program, the original Bush one after 9-11, was legalized, right, in 2007 and 2008, And it was used in ways to collect information that people were not expecting. And while it was targeted at foreigners, it was substantially sweeping in Americans. And so we have never gotten full data on exactly how much information or what type. Um, There are concerns that they got the contents of communication and just the scale of it is really implicating Americans. You know, even if you you don't have concern about the human rights of people overseas and um, you know, retention rules that we are aware of the ones that are approved by the FISA court, for example, under this program are pretty lenient and they allow the government to continually um, recertify that they need to keep the information. So it is longitudinal. It's cumulative. And I think as we're going to talk today, it's just one data stream and put together with everything else the government can now obtain from all of these devices and services, they can really put together a complete surveillance package on what your life looks like. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if they can just keep that data basically forever, um, unless someone, I suppose, compels them to delete it or get rid of it. But 
what about changing? I mean, are there any plans or are there any initiatives going on either through Congress or other outside groups who have concerns to significantly change or do away with any portions of either uh, the Patriot Act or Title III in the near term, such as, you know, you mentioned in 2019 why it's coming up again for renewal of some of these parts? Well, really, the changes that are pursued by advocacy organizations like mine are actually pretty narrow. Um, Most of us do not seek to completely overturn the surveillance statutes, but insert some more traditional protections like probable cause or judicial review or maybe post-collection minimization requirements. And it's possible that next year during the reauthorization of a couple of those Patriot Act provisions, we discuss again whether those domestic collection authorities are too broad and what protections need to be put on them. I will say um, it gets harder and harder, though. The longer the government has these tools, um, the more entrenched they become. And we're quite a ways away from the original Patriot Act now. And I don't think it has quite the sting as people remember it from back then. Um, I do think, though, that some recent court cases and the advancement of technology might encourage Congress to rethink the rules about criminal wiretapping, what our Title III and some of our other surveillance statutes look like, and if they are strong enough now. Um, 1968, when Title III passed, we just couldn't even envision the internet, much less Mm. wearables, connected cars, home IoT. All of these devices are subject to data collection, and people are starting to talk about whether we need to have a very explicit conversation and maybe put new rules on collecting all this information. It's just more sensitive than we ever could have imagined. Um, and it's probably only going to get more sensitive as technology advances. Oh, definitely. Well, for those in the audience, our listeners who might not know how, you know, these laws get changed, does that require both uh, the Senate and the House of Representatives, or is it just one of the chambers that is involved with changing um, these acts, or how does, how do changes take place? Yeah, I think um, over the last 17 years, we've seen that it really takes legislative changes to drive, um, serious reform here. And in the U.S., that means it has to pass through both our House and Senate, our two legislative bodies, and then be signed by the president. Um, Another route for reform, though, is through our courts, which is an independent branch of government um, where we can assert our constitutional rights. Um, For many years, the courts did not want to extend any rights to new technology, but about 10 years ago, things certainly changed, and we've gotten rights um, to a warrant before the government can search our phones, um, and just earlier this year, track our location. Mm -hmm. So I think we are now starting to think about whether we can use the courts more, and whether judicial understanding how technology works, just how intrusive it is, is finally catching up with reality. 
and and all that data that you mentioned before. So we we have to take a quick break here right now, but when we come back, I want to discuss with you some of those very different types of devices and um, sources of data that's being collected. So now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Michelle Richardson from the CDT about government surveillance and hacking. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. 
Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Michelle Richardson, Director of the Center for Democracy and Technology's Privacy and Data Project, about government surveillance and hacking. So we talked a little bit about some of the ways in which surveillance is being made, some of the the laws and so on. But now let's start looking at some of the specific types of surveillance and search activities being done. So Michelle, what are some of the surveillance and search activities being done by the U.S. government and, you know, who knows, maybe some other governments and other countries, both through digital and through physical methods? Well, um, in 2018, listening to phone calls is almost quaint with the type of data that our devices are promulgating on us. And the government has many different ways to get this data. Um, I would call one category sort of the surveillance and public issue. Right. And that uh, in the U.S., our law is very weak about what rights we can expect when we're outside of our home and operating in the public. And so tools like license plate readers or accessing CCTVs is a way that law enforcement can surveil us while we're outside. Um, Often you could do that by approaching um, a CCTV camera owner, you could try to compel access to the information with a warrant, or with the license plate readers, they basically just put a little computer on um, their cop cars, and as they drive through the city, look for um, certain license plates. And sometimes we're finding that they're just collecting millions and millions of location data points that sit in government databases. But that is just one of the new technologies that is being used for surveillance. Um, We're very interested in looking at how Internet of Things data is going to find its way into criminal investigations. Um, We now have connected cars, we have wearables, we have devices in our home, and they're all collecting new types of data that didn't even exist when we wrote our original statutes and we didn't foresee just how sensitive it is and how much of it there would be. So there's going to be a coming debate in the following years about whether that information is going to be protected by a warrant or whether law enforcement will seek it on a lower standard like like a um, subpoena, for example, which is a very big difference and will allow them to really collect a lot more information. And on the IoT, we are seeing that that evidence is already finding its way into court. And there's some really interesting cases, for example, where they used Fitbit data to mm-hmm. infer what a person was doing at a certain time. Um, in another case, they collected water records to try to show what was happening in the home at the time. Um, and they've even uh, used a warrant to take someone to the hospital and uh, force him to have his pacemaker read. And so this data is now being used in really interesting ways. And I assume that it's only going to increase. You know, if you think about things like your thermostat, your fridge, Mm -hmm. everything that we're connecting, it's going to reveal who's doing what and when. And it's all going to be subject to government surveillance. Yes. You know, um, one of the things that I did for several years for NIST 
was to lead their smart grid privacy group. And that was part of their larger cybersecurity working group activities. But it's interesting because back in 2009, everybody, when we point out the risks like you're you're talking about now, back just imagine in 2009, people weren't really even thinking about clouds at all back then or about all these smart devices. But we were talking about the data and how it could be misused. Everyone kind of scoffed at our report, which was um, NISTER 7629, for those of you who are interested out there. But uh, now just look, it's it's come to fruition. I mean, <laughs> that capability is there, and uh, those risks are, are really happening. Um, one thing about what the government has been doing, like getting data from ISPs for comparatively many years now, with these IoT devices, just think about all of the clouds that the, the clouds, uh, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about digital clouds, where this data is being kept. Do you foresee the you know, compelling the release of data from cloud service providers in similar ways as they've been doing with ISPs, or is that something that you've um, that looked into very much? Certainly, they are able to access stored data too, and um, really, if it's there, they can get it unless it's protected by encryption. So, there really are few limits on this substantively, right? We have processes like warrants and subpoenas. There really isn't any single type of data that is beyond government reach. And to be clear, you know, they should be able to access a lot of this data in investigations if they have the right process. But right now we're really grappling with a con- as a country about what that process should be. Should we insist on warrants to protect all of our digital data? Because it really is sensitive, and reflects things um, that are really intimate and personal and sometimes perfectly legal too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or are we going to allow the government to go through our data on a much lower standard? And so I think we are heading though towards more warrants and more protections as average people, Congress and the courts understand what's at stake with this information. Well, and I worry too about, um, you know, add to all of the data that we've mentioned, there's all the instant messaging data, there's text data, there's the the phone data, not only through traditional phones, but through VoIP, there's social media data and the related metadata. I mean, we're talking about a, a lot of different types of data, and with our increasing capabilities for artificial intelligence, I anticipate that there's probably a lot of um, creation of artificial intelligence or AI algorithms that are being created to, to comb through all of this various types of data for very specific reasons or goals, um, maybe for anti-terrorist activities or for criminal research or investigations. Is that something that you've seen growing in uh, occurrences or is that uh, maybe something coming down the road? I think so. I think that is already happening. And I do have to admit, though, that we in the public are 
really years behind the deployment of those sorts of tools. And we usually don't find about found out about them until they're widely adopted and either um, evidence starts showing up in criminal cases or there's a leak of some sort um, or they just become so ubiquitous that people are actually aware of them. And then that's actually part of the problem with how fast technology is advancing. It's very hard for even smart people or tech savvy people to keep up with the type of data out there, the way it's being processed and the type of inferences that either companies or governments are making about us. Well, how about location data? Cause Oh my gosh, there's, Everything now has GPS, right, or some other type of location data. Are Have there been any um, cases that have maybe reflected how we're changing with regard to how that location data is being used? Yeah, we got one of the most exciting Fourth Amendment digital rights cases just this year in a case called Carpenter. And it was about location information um, that the government wanted from a cell phone carrier and that ping that comes back off your phone continuously and they were seeking um, from one carrier a week's worth of data and from another I think it was four months and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court did hold that you have an expectation of privacy in that location information that the government does need to get a warrant. So they can still get it, but they have to have probable cause. They can't use a lesser standard that would make it much easier to collect the information. And it was really interesting. The court looked at a few factors. Um, It was about how necessary the technology was um, and whether you could really avoid it. And the court talked about how important cell phones are today, right? They, um, we, they are central to our jobs, our schools, how we interact with our family. Um, didn't think it was fair to ask people to just opt out of this modern technology. Um, but also just how sensitive the data was. And they understood that location just reflects so much. And that's partly by patterns. Um, you can really infer who's doing what by what they do repeatedly. And apparently, as human beings, we are such creatures of habit. Um, a lot of our stuff is retraceable and um, connectable to things in the real world, even through just our digital breadcrumbs that we leave everywhere. And so the question is, is what will be the next technology that the courts will recognize is sensitive, that isn't like the old phone records or bank records of the past that the courts originally said weren't protected by a warrant. And we're, we're optimistic that things like maybe internet records mm-hmm. uh, or facial recognition technology is on the horizon and that we will be able to obtain warrants for government use of that information too. Well, when I, I think a lot of people don't realize that their phones do give out the pings even when they aren't talking on them, right? Uh, they don't realize that they're they're sending out data even just by simply having one and carrying it around with them. Um, is there any way that, and I've had a lot of people ask me about this too, I think it's a great question for you, how can you know if the government has your data from, uh, let's say, your your smartphones that you're using, that you know, is there any way for them to know, or is that something that they should just assume that all of those pings are out there in many different hands? Well, um, going forward, there will be a higher standard, and so it will be less likely that you will end up um, 
with your government, with the government, you know, collecting your data. So um, I would think at least on the location information, as by way of cell phone, at least, um, there will be more protections there. But, you know, there are other things that um, have not gone through the courts yet. And the law enforcement has not been limited in, you know, one thing we're hearing more and more about is, for example, their um, monitoring of social media information, mm-hmm. right, under this idea that if you have a public Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest, Pinterest account that you are sort of foregoing your right to communicate without being observed by law enforcement. So that's something that we'll have to look at coming here soon. Um, but, you know, drones, license plate readers, uh, CCTVs, when you put them all together, we're all in databases somewhere. Law enforcement, mm-hmm. corporate, um, we are building a world where you really just cannot hide anymore. And so we need to have a very smart conversation about what that means legally and how we protect ourselves. Well, in talking about not hiding anymore, so many people treat their phones like it's their personal diary and it's their, you know, their their personal a photo album and video album vault and everything else. And they think that, you know, it's safe there, that nobody can get to it. But it seems like there's a lot more cases where there's phone searches going on is that something that you've also looked at where are they taking people's phones and searching them well actually that brings up two very controversial issues right now um, border searches and encryption Um, one with the border searches um, you know it started a few years ago but the government got very aggressive about searching phones at the border Um, there's been an exception to the Fourth Amendment and the warrant requirement at the border for a very long time, but it was originally about trying to find contraband on someone, someone bringing something illegal into the United States. And um, it really doesn't make sense in the digital world because that's not the same thing, right? And we're finding that people are being stopped and asked to turn over their phone. Without a warrant, the government is able to copy what's on it or even just browse through it at the moment to see what's in there, um, which is a really disturbing um, intrusion. Because like you said, we have everything on our phones. It's the pictures of our kids. It's the notes to our loved ones. It could have our financial data. It really is where we have everything now. Um, but also the other question with phones is the encryption debate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's just raging for decades now and just sort of flares up every few years, usually with the FBI taking the lead and asking that um, we try to find a way to force companies and service providers to build backdoors. And this has become focused really on cell phones in the last few years and um, whether that sort of device level encryption should be permitted. And um, there have been court cases. Um, We haven't seen any legislation yet, but uh, it's probably coming at some point. And um, I guess there will be a debate over whether we want to force phone companies to rebuild their products in a way that will both make information easier for the government to obtain, but also be hacked by bad guys. Oh, yes. I mean, I th- it just concerns me so much, especially about with encryption. Of course, my background is in, you know, computer science and math and doing systems engineering. And when I 
it's always just been kind of a, a known fact that the fewer people who are able to have this, the digital keys to your data, the more secure it is. And it, the thought of having some sort of back door where how many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people potentially would be able to access that backdoor key or exploit it or break it, it just, uh, it really concerns me. Not only that, but the fact that we have strong encryption algorithms and solutions found all over the world. So it, it, I don't know. It just seems to me like if you're forcing legitimate businesses and vendors to build back doors into their um, digital tools, that people will just go and get the strong tool somewhere else in the world and use it anyway. So what have you actually gained uh, by requiring a back door other than to, you know, hurt the businesses that have to follow that back door requirement if that, that ever comes to fruition? Well, and I think that's an important question about what we have to gain from this. And I think the government has not made a good case about why, with all the other data that's out there now about us, access to these phones is worth the risk of building the back door. And I believe it was earlier this year, it was quite controversial that um, it was discovered that the numbers that the FBI had been using for quite a while to just say that there were thousands and thousands of cases um, where encryption thwarted investigation, you know, the number was wrong. It was an mm-hmm. overstatement, um, and that it was really more like a thousand or less than two thousand. Um, and compared with the hundreds of thousands of cases brought across this country, right, um, it seems to be a really small percentage. And you know, it's not even clear that in those there is information on those phones that couldn't be found another way by going to yeah. the email or service provider or um, other investigative techniques. So I think, um, you know, I, I don't see legislation, for example, passing in the foreseeable future. There's just not a good mm-hmm. case being made right now about why it is crucial and why it is worth the risk to make such a systemic change in our security. Oh, yeah. Well, and that kind of comes to um, government hacking. So, you know, how do they get to the data if they don't have a key? Well, they do government hacking. Um, I guess uh, for the the final big discussion for our our talk today, what is government, when when we say government hacking, what is it and how is it related to Title III? Well, people use government hacking to cover a few different things, but it is usually about when the government needs to access information or a device without either one going directly to the person, right? Mm -hmm. Here's a warrant. Give me your phone. I'm going to go search it. Um, Or going through a service provider like a phone company or an email provider to get the information. And it allows them to surreptitiously collect information. And we know that it's been used at the criminal level for decades now in one form or another. Um, And we know a little less about how it's used in the intelligence realm. It's classified and occasionally get a glimpse of something that happens, but we have a lot less transparency into how it works there. Um, We do know that often um, a warrant is obtained for the hacking here in um, the U.S. for our criminal investigations. And sometimes it's done in rounds or with two steps, where the first so-called hack is about um, identifying a person. And then you would go back then and actually search or get a warrant to search the entire computer. 
after you know who the real life person is. Um, you know, one of the ways it is used is to identify people who are obscuring their identity or location. And it's a way for them to do that surreptitiously and not tip off an entire network. Mm. So people are concerned that, um, that sort of searching through hacking out in the open internet can be more dangerous, right, than other types of searches. Certainly if someone comes in to search your home, everyone everyone in the room is implicated, the people you live with. But mm-hmm. out on the open internet, you know, mistakes can ripple through systems. Um, it could be more complicated than searches in the real world. So mm-hmm. there's a debate about whether we need to put extra protections on that sort of government hacking activity to make sure that we are accounting for all the unintended consequences and putting enough controls on it to make sure that we aren't either hurting the internet ecosystem, implicating people who have nothing to do with a target or an investigation um, and things like that. Oh, definitely. Well, in the last two minutes, what then, when people think about government surveillance and hacking and all the the data that we've been talking about, what's a key takeaway that you'd like to leave with our listeners today about all of these topics? It's that we should probably think about heightening standards for accessing all this information. You know, when we wrote the rules about wiretapping and what now affects hacking, it was decades ago, and we really counted on friction in the system to protect us, right? There's only so many man hours and so much money and people were really selective about how they use these sorts of tools. But now data is cheap, it's instantaneous, um, technology is moving fast and so they're just collecting more and more data on us. And we need to revisit the issue and see if the processes we have now are fairly protecting our information. Yes, time to update the rules to meet our current uh, digital um, environment. So definitely. Well, well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Michelle. I've learned a lot. and I know my listeners have also. Thanks for having me. Today I've been speaking with Michelle Richardson, Director of the Center for Democracy and Technology's Privacy and Data Project, about government surveillance and hacking. Do you have a topic to suggest I cover or a guest to suggest? Or do you have a topic that you think my listeners would be interested in hearing about? Um, Just let me know. You can contact me with questions and comments and provide me with information about your ideas ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, and of course on the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. Also, Feel free to contact me for information security, privacy, and compliance keynotes if you need an expert witness or if you want more information about my Symbus360.com security and privacy cloud services. And if you're interested in 
You can always check out my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, where I have a lot of of my appearances on the CW Iowa Live morning shows and see the topics that we discuss there. So I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it is secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and who you work for if they are doing all that they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com.